John chapter 19. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So far the reading of God's word. History is full of all kinds of stories of people who lived meaningful, honorable lives, who tried to do something good in the world, tried to bring enlightenment, tried to bring progress, tried to bring good. Good people who were killed. Uh, one example is um, Socrates. You may have heard of Socrates, philosopher, lived in ancient Athens and and he uh, tried to enlighten the people of Athens with his teaching, and uh, he ran afoul of the leadership in Athens who had him drink hemlock and kill himself. Another philosopher by the name of Seneca lived in ancient uh, Rome, and he uh, again tried to bring enlightenment to the people, and he was put to death by Emperor Nero, Nero the same emperor that actually had the Apostle Paul killed again, unjustly. And in each of these cases, you have people who were innocent, uh, but were powerless to control what happened to them. They were subject to powers that were beyond their control, and, and corrupt governments, basically, uh, in order to keep their power, had them put to death. And some would say that Jesus Christ himself is the greatest example of this, Jesus came into this world preaching peace, pre preaching a message of harmony, preaching a, a message of love uh, to your fellow man. He, he did challenge the status quo and he challenged the authorities, both the, the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities. He tried to open their minds, so to speak, and the leadership felt threatened by that. And so they conspired to kill him. And if you read the passion narrative, that is, the section of the Gospels that describe the week leading up to the death of Jesus, you'll see that he was basically railroaded to the cross. His death was unjust. And he seemed powerless to stop it. Now, there's no question that Jesus' death was gruesome. 
Uh, all you have to do is turn on the TV at some point today and watch a newscast, and they'll most definitely be showing uh, somewhere around the world uh, a reenactment of the crucifixion of Christ. And it's a pretty gruesome thing to see. His nails pierced hands and his nail pierced feet on this block of wood where he hung in the sun for hours on end until his death. And it was unfair, no doubt about that. It was an, an illegitimate conviction that, that was placed upon him and he didn't deserve that death. But here's the thing. Nowhere in the Bible do we read that Jesus was actually a hapless swept up in that and he eventually uh, was put to death unfairly and unjustly. In fact, the Bible does the exact opposite. It takes great pains to show that Jesus went to the cross deliberately. The Bible takes great pains to show that it was his destiny to die and that Jesus actually controlled his destiny. And this is especially true actually, of the gospel according to John. Uh, John, more than any of the other gospel writers, wants to emphasize this. In, in John chapter 10, we read this in verses 17 and 18. Now, when Jesus, whoops, sorry. There we are. This is Jesus speaking. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus' death on that cross 2,000 years ago did not happen because things happened outside of his control. In fact, the opposite is true. Every detail of Jesus' death, every detail from his arrest to his final cry, it is finished, was orchestrated. Now, I want to do two things very quickly with you this morning. Not very quickly, but briefly. I want to just show you how that's true from this passage. But then I want to take a few minutes to tell you why that matters to show you that this is how the Bible portrays Christ's death. John, he, in his gospel, he uses this phrase that the scriptures might be fulfilled over and over and over again. And interestingly, the closer you get to the death of Jesus, the more frequently he actually uses it. So actually here in verse 24, he says this, so that so they said to one another, let us not tear it. They're talking about Jesus' tunic, the Roman soldiers, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, what's interesting about this is that the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' tunic to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy, one that you just heard read by the worship team a few minutes ago. It comes from Psalm 22. And if you're not familiar with Psalm 22, I strongly, strongly encourage you to read the entire psalm and read it this weekend. Because Psalm 22 is a prophecy about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ written by King David some 1,000 years before Jesus lived. Now let that sink in. A thousand years before Jesus lived, 
David wrote these words. This is verse 18 of Psalm 22. They divided my garment. Incredibly detailed prophecy about what was going to happen to Jesus a thousand years later after those words were written down. And realize this, the soldiers didn't fulfill this prophecy consciously. They're Romans, they're pagans, they have absolutely no clue about it. But John emphasizes this point to show that God is in absolute control of the events surrounding the death of Jesus. He even drives this home when he says, after the, after the quote in the, in the text, he says, so the soldiers did these things. Without knowing God's will, they fulfilled God's will. Jesus is not to be pictured as a hapless victim to be pitied, but rather an obedient son who has submitted himself to his father's will. He has chosen this path. The phrase comes up again in verse 28. In verse 28, it says, After Jesus, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Now, it's slightly different this time because this is Jesus consciously fulfilling per, uh, prophecy. So he did this on purpose. To fulfill prophecy, to fulfill scripture, he cries out, I thirst. So here's the, here's the, the picture. He's nearly dead. His work of dying on the cross for our sins is almost done, but it's not quite done. He says to himself, he has the awareness to say, I need to fulfill prophecy, and so he says, I thirst. And then what happens in verse 29 is, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now this is not the gall. If you're familiar with this story, you know that Jesus was offered gall earlier, which was a mixture of wine and myrrh, and that was supposed to be, in ancient times, that was used as a sedative. And Jesus had refused that because Jesus had to experience the full weight, the full brunt of our punishment for sin. And so Jesus didn't, didn't allow his pain to be dulled in any way at all. This was sour wine that was used for thirst. And again, the soldiers, they don't know that they're fulfilling prophecy, but they offer this to him. And Jesus did know that he was fulfilling prophecy because it's sour wine to drink. And then, Jesus drinks the sour wine. His job is finished. His mission is completed. He's fulfilled all prophecy. He has taken our punishment for sin. In Greek, it's one word. It means accomplished. It means completed. This is not the desperate cry that, or the, the kind of last cry of a desperate man. This is not an innocent man who's hanging there cursing his uh, executioners. It was a sober word of triumph from our Savior. Because this plan that had been set out from the beginning of time, every detail had been planned and was now completed. And then we read, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Literally, it says he pillowed his head. 
he pillowed his head. There's no like final jerk of the body as it, as it gives up and succumbs to its injuries. Jesus literally pillowed his head, gave up his spirit. He, he controlled his death. He died because the job was done. You see, from beginning to end, the story of the crucifixion is the story of the divine Son of God deliberately going through the most unspeakable suffering to accomplish the plan of his Father. Jesus' death had to happen, and it had to happen this way. If we were going to be saved, there was no other option. You know, this is, I got this from Spurgeon. I, I first read this in, in something from Charles Spurgeon. I can't even remember where, but he says, you know, what was it like in the throne room of God when God said to all the angels gathered around him in glory that his beloved creation had sinned against him, had rebelled against him, and were sitting under his judgment and deserved to be cast out of his presence forever and ever. But, but he didn't want that. He wanted to rescue them. And he said, who will go and rescue my people from their sin? And all the angels are looking around at one another and Gabriel and Michael, the great archangels are standing there and they're kind of staring at their feet and there's silence in the throne room of heaven. And then Jesus, who's at the right hand of his father, he stands up and he says, I'll go. And immediately the angels begin to cry out, no, no, don't you know what they're going to do to you? Don't you know that when you go that they will reject you and they will hate you and they will spit upon you and you will speak of the love of God to them and you will pour out your life for them and then they will grab you and they will nail you to a tree and they will have you hang there as they spit and mock and laugh at you and forsake you entirely. Don't do it. And he says, of course I know. Of course I know. I know they'll hate me. I know they'll reject me. I know they won't understand. But I'll go. This is the plan. It has to be this way. And it is worth it. Now, if that's the biblical picture, that there was not a detail out of place, that the entire thing was planned from beginning to end, what does that mean for us? Well, the first thing I think it means is this. You can believe it's true. I'm going to read it, and read it through the lens of what you know about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. He wrote this prophecy a thousand years before Jesus even lived. How did them happen to him? It has baffled scholars forever and ever. Because he doesn't write about his own experiences at all. And the only way you can explain it and make sense of it is to say he was seeing through the power of the Holy Spirit a future king named Jesus who would come to live and die for us. 
How do you explain it? And you know, it's not the only prophecy in the Bible of Jesus' coming death and resurrection. And as we'll see on Sunday, when you couple this with the resurrection, you've got very solid evidence to believe that Christianity is true. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it should increase your sorrow over your sin. Because you see, this whole story was driven by the need to pay the penalty for our sin. It was our sin that drove Jesus to the cross. If it was not the only, if it was not the only way it could have been solved, if, or sorry, let me put it this way. If this is the only way to deal with our sin, what does that tell us about the gravity of our sin? Now listen, some of you are not going to like what I'm about to say, but you need to hear this. Some of you have not taken seriously your sin. Because you live in a culture that has taught you to compare yourself to people around you. You live in a culture that has taught you to say that when you feel crappy, look at someone who's crappier so that you can feel a bit better. When you feel guilty, tell yourself it's not that bad. At least you didn't do what that person's done. At least you're not an axe murderer. But the reality is, is that when you stand before the judge and when I stand before her, I will have the spotlight on me and me alone and it will be me and me alone. It will be you and you alone who has to deal with God. And you can say to God, well, I didn't understand or I tried really hard or I, I really gave it my best shot. And he will look at you and he will say, none of those excuses suffice. Preachers love to say this, and it's true because it's, it, they love to say it because it's powerful and dramatic, but it's also very, very true. You need to understand, friends, if you were the only person on earth, and it was your sin and only your sin that Jesus had to deal with, it was enough to require him to die on that cross. And you and I may think, well, it's, I'm not that bad. Look at what Jesus had to do for you. you. It wasn't that bad. Ah, I'm sometimes a little selfish. Ah, I'm sometimes a bit of a gossip. Ah, I sometimes can be a little bit lustful. If you have never wept over your sin, if you have never cried over your sin, not because it makes you feel bad, because you think, darn it, I wish I was a better person. Darn it, I wish I didn't have that anger problem. Darn it, I, I wish I wasn't addicted to, to whatever substance and I keep falling off the wagon. Darn it, darn it, darn it. If, if you haven't cried over your sin because you look at the cross and you see Jesus dying there and you see him hanging there and you think to yourself, that's my fault. I did that to him.
third thing. It should magnify your love for Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. If he orchestrated everything, it means he knew exactly what he was getting into. And he knew that we wouldn't be very grateful. He knew when he came, his own people would reject him. He knew that even those of us who have lived centuries after and have had the whole Bible to pour over for century after century, that, that we, would, we would not burst forth with gratitude immediately. He knew that. He knew that we wouldn't get it, and he went anyway. Do you question if he loves you? Really? Look at the cross. He, wasn't, he didn't just have to die for you. He was glad to die for you. And then finally, it should encourage your faith. What I mean by that is this. Every detail was carefully planned and executed. Not just what he did, but for whom. Jesus didn't just know entirely what he was going to do. He knew intimately and completely who he was going to do it for. Remember that passage I read from John 10 where it says that, that, that Jesus laid down his life and only to take it up again? Well, just before he says that, listen to what he says. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus knew who he was dying for. In other words, when he was hanging on that cross, bearing the weight of, of God's judgment for sin, he had your name on his lips. He had everything that you had ever done or doing right now or ever will do. They were all there. They were all exposed. He knew everything about you. And he clutched you to his breast while he died. And he said, I'm doing this for Jamie. I'm doing this for Tom. I'm doing this for Adam. I'm doing this for Carolyn. I'm doing this. Isn't he wonderful? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know, we feel conflicted about calling the day of your crucifixion good. That there had to be a day when you would take the judgment for our sin is not good at all. But that you would freely, fully, gladly give yourself for us on the cross is never to be surpassed goodness. It is quintessential, unparalleled good. From your heart and cross came these two impassioned cries, Father, forgive them. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
The first required the second. The second secured the first. Together they humble our hearts, silence our words, and fuel our worship. Are finished. There's nothing more to be done. Once and for all, perfectly and fully, you have been reconciled. We have been reconciled to you. The just died for the unjust, the beautiful one for the broken ones, the Lamb of God for the rebels of God. We praise, bless, and adore you, Lord Jesus. A million years plus into our life in the new heaven and the new earth, we will still be filled with childlike wonder and ceaseless gratitude for the gospel. Because you were fully forsaken, we are forever forgiven. Because you exhausted God's judgment against our great unrighteousness, we now live by the gift of your perfect righteousness. Because you love us so extravagantly, we can love each other with kindness and hope. We bow our heads in awe, raise our hands in praise, and surrender our lives with joy. So very amen we pray in your all-glorious, all-graceful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.